0: Welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Convention of States Action President, Mark Meckler. You can watch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Convention of States Facebook and Rumble channels. The country is divided. 50-50, whatever it is, 48-52, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but our country is, in, is divided. Raise your hand if you think the country's more divided than ever before in your lifetime. Yeah, I feel that way. So the country's really divided. It's really an interesting time in American history, dangerous time in American history. Maybe, I've heard people say this, I don't disagree with this, maybe on the brink of a civil war. It's, it's certainly already what I would call a cold civil war in America. Uh, we've got the power of the police state being used to suppress conservatives, being used to suppress Christians, being used to, to suppress anybody who's willing to speak out against the power of the state. It's being used now. There's one side of the political aisle that is in the favor of the use of that power to suppress our speech in America right now. That's a recipe for something to explode in the United States of America. We've seen it before. We saw it during the Civil War. It exploded. right? So the question is, what do we do about it? We live in this time in America where we're facing a choice. How do we deal with what we're facing right now? You know, we say that we live in the most divided time in the United States of America, maybe other than the Civil War. We all say it's that divided. We raise our hands very quickly. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it different today than previously in American history? It's bad, it's divided, yes, absolutely. How about the colonial era before we became a country? Everybody loved each other, everybody got along, it wasn't divided at all, right? Colonies hated each other. I mean, they really hated each other. They were like foreign countries to each other. And in fact, if you look at the colonies and what they said about each other, mostly they hated each other along Christian sectarian lines, right? And so you had the different denominations of Christianity. They would call each other blasphemers. It was like the worst thing you could say back then. Can you imagine if that's the worst thing you could say today? <laughs> Please, Lord. And so this is what they were doing. They hated each other. They came together because they faced an existential threat. Right, so you have the King of England, and through the declaratory acts he says, I'm going to impose my will on you. Parliament says, we're gonna impose our will on you. And the colonies say, we're not gonna allow that to happen. This is an incredible moment in human history. And so the colonies rise up and they join arms and they fight a revolutionary war and all of you are patriots, you know the history and the story of that war and ultimately we win that war. It's important to note as a revolution, it's almost unique in human history because revolutions usually decide that they're gonna come up, rise up and throw off a form of government. That's the general cause of a revolution. In this case, they were trying to preserve their form of government. This was a self-governing nation. You had colonial governments, town councils. They were governing themselves mostly the way they wanted to and the king and parliament had said, no, we're not gonna let you do that anymore. We're gonna choose the people. We're gonna tell you when you have elections. We're gonna disband town councils and colonial governments if we decide to. So all they were trying to do was preserve their form of government. Praise God, and I do mean praise God that it's a successful revolution led by men who loved God and who believed in righteous Judeo-Christian principles because they didn't turn into tyrants, right? Because what happens in most revolutions is the very worst people win and you go from tyranny to really bad tyranny. That's the arc of human history. The French Revolution takes place just on the heels of the American Revolution, of fraternity and all this great slogans, right? Fraternity, equality. And what happens out of the French Revolution? It's bloody. There's way more blood post-revolution than pre-revolution. Ultimately, it goes back, it goes from tyranny to really bad tyranny, to tyranny. That's the end of the French Revolution. That's normal in a revolution. We have this miracle that happens, right? One-of-a-kind revolution. The good news is, after the revolution, everything settles down, and the colonies become a new country, and they all just love each other. (laughs) Hey, I have an excuse. I went to school in Los Angeles, California. Uh, So no, that's not what happens. They form the Articles of Confederation, which is a government for people who really, really hate each other a lot, right? Because they give nobody any power. They say, I don't like you, I don't trust you. You people up there in Rhode Island are nuts. We're not giving you any power over us. And they form a government that has absolutely no power that doesn't work at all. It doesn't protect them against the existential threat. So in 1787, they gather again, they get together in that hall. We know the famous story and they get in that hall because the government's not working. They know they need to do something different. They all get together, they all send a bunch of guys. They're all friends, they drink tea and they drink ale in the evenings together. Everything goes smoothly and that's how we get the constitution, right? They get into that hall. They hate each other. They accuse each other of all kinds of horrible things. There are people who are self-interested. There's commercial interests. It's big states against small states. It's slave states against free states. It's ugly. It's reported that three times the convention almost comes apart. They're screaming and yelling at each other. Franklin calls for prayer. Like it's crazy what goes on in that hall. And out of that, Out of a meeting of a bunch of men who really don't like each other, a bunch of big egos, a bunch of self-interested people, a bunch of people with different geographical interests and size, state interests. What comes out of that is the finest form of government ever designed for the preservation of liberty, and that is the system of constitutional republic based on the concept of federalism. Federalism is an abused and overused word, in my opinion. And most people don't understand what it means. And in our case, what federalism means, I'm going to give you what I think should be the dictionary definition of federalism. It is a government of distributed powers designed for people who hate each other. See, because if you don't think the people in New York should tell people in Virginia what to do, then you create a government that acknowledges that we face existential threats in the world, we gotta do some stuff together, but most stuff we're gonna do on our own, thank you very much. I'm from Texas, we think we should do everything on our own in Texas. (laughs) So this is what we get out of it, it's incredible. Now the good news is immediately after that convention, the entire country holds hands, sings Kumbaya, and we have the new constitution. No. No, it's ugly. It's ugly. They go out there. We have the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers. People are angry. People are yelling at each other. There are factions all over the country. And by the grace of God, the Constitution is ratified in 1789. Unbelievably, Rhode Island comes along a lot later. But we get the country that we have today in 1789 through the ratification of the Constitution. Now, it has this incredible calming energy on the nation and everybody immediately loves each other right no no in fact over time the wounds that are left open from the 1787 convention are so severe and the divisions are so severe that by 1865 we're actually engaged in a civil war over 700,000 people killed and maimed brother against brother town against town state against state it is a full-blown civil war one of the ugliest in human history. And at the end, we get along so well that the victorious side, which has decimated the other side, actually forces the south into a country. It doesn't sound like we're getting along very well at that point. Now the good news is, after the union is saved and it's put back together, you know the history, everybody gets along perfectly, right? No, that is not what happens. We are a fractious people. I would say we're a stiff-necked people, right? And so we continue to argue and fight over even the most basic things in the United States of America, civil rights being among them. We, we end slavery, we have equal protection, but all the, all the old stuff around slavery still exists in the South at that point. Racism is endemic in the United States of America and it takes us a long time to deal with these problems I would argue that there's a blip in American history. That's really important. That blip comes around the Second World War and we unite during the Second World War. This is really amazing Common theme we face an existential threat, right? fascism totalitarianism rising in the world everybody in the country sacrifices at that point point. People are recycling together. People are buying war bonds together. Everybody knows people who've gone off to war. Everybody knows people who didn't come home from the war. And we are triumphant again. By the grace of God, we do something that I think should have been by all accounts impossible at the time. We fight a multi-front war, we win. After that period in American history, the GIs come home, you have the greatest, most prosperous period in American history, the 1950s. This is where we get the idea of uh, the American dream. You get the house in the suburbs, the picket fence, the dog, the kids, all of that stuff. We're all striving for that stuff. America's not perfect by any means at that point, but we are pretty unified as a country. Some cultural things start happening. We have national radio broadcast networks. So we start gathering around the radio, 1930s, 1940s, we're all listening to the same programming. By the 1950s, it's the television, it's moving pictures. And we're all watching the same television shows. If you're in Mississippi or if you're in New York, you can all watch the same television shows. Everybody's watching the Honeymooners and stuff like that. For those of you like old shows like I do. And so we're watching all that stuff, and it seems like our culture is pretty similar. New York, Mississippi, we watch that. You start to get the advent of national brands. Uh, You get Lucky Strike cigarettes, Borax soap. These are things now we're consuming the same products because we're consuming the same media, and it kind of feels like we're all maybe kind of the same. Get into the 1960s, I'm fast forwarding here, into the 1960s, you get franchising. We start to get brands like that you can go into a store all across the country mcdonald's carl's jr all these different brands hotels holiday inns across the country gas stations all across the country by the 1960s i can actually drive from biloxi mississippi to manhattan and all along the way i can stop at a brand of gas station i'm familiar with i can buy my lucky strike cigarettes in every one of those gas stations i can eat at mcdonald's all along the way and when i get to new york city even though i'm from biloxi there's plenty of food i recognize by the way that was not true in the 1930s But by the 1960s, that's true. It's like the culture is all becoming one, right? And then you get major league sports developing late 50s, early 60s, into the 70s, major league baseball, major league football, uh, major league soccer, anyone? No, just kidding. That's not American. Uh, (laughs) Hockey you get all these major league sports right now. We're all rooting for the same sports teams. We're all in it together It seems like we're a monoculture e pluribus unum is actually happening in the United States of America by the 1970s This is the era of unfettered big government. I've got a pop quiz for you Who in Washington DC in the 1970s was the champion of small government? Nobody (laughs) Nobody Nobody in Washington DC was saying government's too big they were talking about economies of scale and you know It's one big country and it's bigger is better. And so we get all these big agencies you know we get the the Department of Education the EPA come from Richard Nixon, a Republican president. Nowadays, you think, oh, a Republican would never put an administrative agency in place. That comes with Richard Nixon, and so this is where we're at in the 1970s. So the country's unified, we're all together, we're all being governed from the same place, which is Washington, D.C. Sometimes when I think about the United States of America, I picture the Liberty Bell. Everybody gets that picture in their mind. You know exactly what that looks like. Big, beautiful bell with the big crack in it, right? That crack relieved the pressure when the bell was forged. That crack is necessary for that bell to stay in one piece. It couldn't stay in one piece without cracking. That's, to me, in my mind, that's like the United States of America. It's a big, beautiful country, but there's always been a fissure in this country. There's always been a crack. There's always been multiple cracks in this country, but we started to with World War II and into all these things I told you about, we papered over that crack. So one layer at a time, paper mache, the media, the products, the sports leagues, the networks, and then it was just this beautiful e pluribus unum thing, except for in the 1960s, something happened that started to break our society apart. Vietnam War. The Vietnam War happens now, I was just a little kid. I was, uh, you know, 10 years old in 1972, so I don't really have many memories of the war, but I look back at the videos, and I see a lot of stuff that I see today. I see big drug problems in the country, open drug problems, people saying that it's okay, that all these crazy drugs that people are doing, weed, psychedelic drugs, all this stuff is okay. We see, if you look back at the pictures, half-naked people with body paint, now they don't even bother to put body paint on, right? But that's what we see in the streets. We saw riots in the streets, people throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers. Feels exactly like the summer of love in 2020, right? Seems a lot alike, so that all starts back then our society continues to schism underneath even though government continues to govern us more and more from washington dc that schism is there and the paper mache is ripping and so we come to where we're at today i'll just be blunt again where i'm at so i'm a 61 year old white male christian tea party bible thumping gun toting guy that's who i am (laughs) I appreciate that, but I promise you, it gets a different response in San Francisco. Now, <laughs> about that point, I'm calling for security. Uh, so that's where I come from. I look at what's going on out in the country, and I probably would have looked at it the same in, in the 1960s during the Vietnam War, and I think, what in God's name is going on? I don't recognize this country. I look at it now, and I, I look at it like this. I go, well, it's not just abortion should be safer and legal, which is bad enough. It's shout your abortion till ninth month and maybe beyond that's evil that's not just bad that's evil right so i look at that that's what i see i look at they're trying to teach our young kids that men are women women are men both are neither you're born however you are and gender is fluid except for there are 157 genders i don't even know what it means but i know it's crazy and it's not just bad it's evil They're trying to say and legislate that you can uh, chemically castrate young children, children who are not old enough to buy cigarettes, drive or vote, but they're allowed to choose their gender. They're trying to tell us that you should teach kids this stuff in school, there's pornography in our schools. Uh, And they're also telling us, by the way, that it's really important that you judge people by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. And I look at that and I look out at the country and I think, I don't even know if I can live in a country with those people. I don't even know if I want to live in a country with those people. Just being honest with you, that's what I feel. But there's a flip side to that, flip that coin over and I know a lot of these people and you talk to people on the left and they would look at somebody like me saying the things that I've said here tonight and they would say, that guy is a white supremacist. That guy is a racist, that guy is a misogynist, that guy is an Islamophobe, a homophobe, and everything-phobe, right? In fact, let's just simplify it and say he's a Nazi. And then they would say, I'm not sure I wanna live in a country with a guy like that, people like that. I'm not sure I can live in a country with people like that. So that brings us to where we're at. We all agreed that the country is entirely divided. So what do you do in a divided country like this? Well, we have a couple of choices. One is that we secede. Now I'm from Texas, we like secession in Texas. But it's not real. States don't have the right to secede. And even if they could, it's only violent. That's the only way you're gonna ever be able to secede is is violent secession. And you know I'm from Texas, which a good red state, Texas. It's, well, except for Austin where I live. It's not exactly red in Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, El Paso. Yeah, it's a red state with a bunch of big blue population areas in it. So how do you secede in a case like that? Like, we're going to be a conservative state. You know, I guess some of my really conservative friends, they say we could kick out all the liberals. I mean, I like that idea, but I just don't think it's practical. I'm just so secession isn't real. It's not going to work. That's not going to happen. I'm from California originally, 85% of the geography of California is red. Like, if you look at a map, 85% geographically is red. These big blue population centers, LA, San Francisco, unfortunately more and more San Diego, big population centers. So what do you do? How do you divide that state? There's no Mason-Dixon line anymore. There's no place north-south. There's no place west-east where you can divide the United States of America. So dividing us up doesn't work. I know. I hear this all the time from people on the right. My friends, right, people on the right will say, The tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants and patriots. All we need is a good revolution, a good civil war. Any combat veterans in this audience? Raise your hand if you've seen combat. Does that sound like a good idea to you? No. I've talked to a lot of veterans. I'm not brave enough. I don't have the honor of saying that I've served, but I know a lot of people have, and I know a lot of people that have been in combat. And if you say that to them, I'll tell you what I generally hear. They look at me with a really steely look in their eyes and they say, you're out of your freaking mind. You have no idea what that looks like. You don't know what you're talking. If you want to know what that looks like, look at Israel right now. Dead women, children, carnage, starvation, destruction. Look at the videos from Ukraine. You can actually see this stuff online if you have the stomach for it. So if any of your friends tell you, "Oh, all we need is a civil war, you know, we'll beat them down. I got lots of guns. Look, it's good to have lots of guns. I like that. But we don't need a civil war in this country. And for those of us who are great patriots, and I count everybody in this audience among those great patriots, if you believe in the one true God, then you don't believe that this is what we should do. I'm not saying it won't come to that because that's not up to us. Ultimately, God has his hand on everything that happens, but I'm saying we have an obligation to do everything we can to avoid that. So if it's not secession, if it's not revolution or civil war, then what's the solution? We're a divided country. Thank God for the framers of the United States Constitution because they gave us a tool to prevent the problems that we're having today, to fix the problems that have come upon us. You know, One of the most important days in American history is September 15th. Most of you are sitting there like, I don't know, September 15th. That one's not familiar to me. Fill me in, Mark. September 15th is my wife's birthday. (laughs) If I forget that one, promise you, it's one of the most important days in American history. But it is also the day on which Colonel George Mason stood up September 15, 1787. He addresses the men assembled in the hall. They're in in Independence Hall. They're drafting the Constitution. It's almost done. They're two days before the end of convention. And he says, we blew it. We have a problem. We drafted a document that gives the power to Congress to propose amendments, but we didn't give that same power to the people acting through the states. And he asks the question, are we so naive that we believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? You know, I always hear people, somebody chuckles in the audience. I think they laughed in Independence Hall. I think they just started laughing because it's ridiculous. No tyrant in human history has ever said these words. You know, I think I have a little too much power. We need to give some back. It's not the nature of tyranny, and he knew that the states would have to act, and we know what the people in that hall did. We don't have a videotape of them laughing, but we have Madison's Notes, which in that point say these two small Latin abbreviations, NIN and stands for no comment. Not one person debates, not one person argues, and unanimously they agree to put the second clause of Article 5 in that gives you all of us, through our state legislatures, the power to call a convention, to propose amendments, to take power Washington, away from Washington, D.C., and give it back to the people. Does that sound good to anybody? So we have the power, so you would think we would use it. The framers would be appalled. Sometimes I imagine myself sitting with Ben Franklin. He's one of my favorite framers. He was just a cantankerous old dude. He was the oldest guy at the convention. I think it was 81 years old at the time of convention. That was really old back then. He'd been all over the world. He was well-read, well-spoken. He was a scientist, really smart guy, very practical guy. I imagine sitting down with him and telling him about all the bad things that are going on. Ben, they control our healthcare system. They're putting all these naked pictures in our libraries. He might've been used to that. He spent a lot of time in France, so I'm not sure about that one. But I'm telling him all the problems we're having, all the government overreach, and, and I imagine Franklin saying, well, what about Article 5? I mean, you've, you've called a convention, the states have gotten together, we've pushed back, and you guys have taken some of that power away from them, right? And I, I imagine how bad I would feel in that moment. Well, no, Ben, uh, you've... no. And he would say, well, why not? And I would say, well, you know, Ben, uh, it's uh, hard, it's hard. That's it's really hard to do this. He'd be like, "Son, we fought a revolution. People died for this cause, so that you would have the right to do this. And you're telling me it's hard? Well, it's also been. I mean, there's people who believe in liberty like you and I do, Ben. But um, they uh, they say it's too scary. It's dangerous. And imagine him slamming down his cup of ale and saying, "I can't even listen to this anymore." feel free to give me a call after you've called a convention and used article five and tell me how it goes. I think they'd be appalled that we haven't done it by now. I think they'd be stunned. they had no income tax. They had no federal register. They didn't even tell them how much, how much water they could use to flush their toilets. They didn't have flush toilets. And so I think they would be appalled that we haven't done it now. So the question we have to ask ourselves is do we have the courage to call a convention of states? Let me tell you exactly how it works. According to Article 5, it takes two-thirds of the states to call a convention of states. They call a convention of states by getting together in their state legislature, no governors necessary, no courts, no president, no Congress, and the legislature passes what's called a resolution or a call and says, hey, we'd like to have a convention of states. In the case of our organization, we're calling for that convention to discuss three things, anything that would impose term limits on the federal government. Does that sound good to anybody? Not just on Congress, but on bureaucrats and staffers. I call it the Fauci Amendment. Right? This guy shouldn't be there 40 years. Anybody think that the federal government is financially out of control? How about a balanced budget amendment? How about limitations on taxes, limitations on spending? Here's one. The federal government has no standards by which they measure their finances. And that sounds weird, if you've ever been in business, you're required to, a church is required to use what are called generally accepted accounting principles, GAP, right, there's a finance team here, they use GAP principles to track all of their accounting. I was at the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, one time, sitting around a bunch of high muckety mucks there, and I said, I understand you guys don't use GAP, so what kind of principles do you have? And they said, well, we don't have any principles. (laughs) I said, no, I I understand that, I meant accounting principles. (laughs) So how about we impose gap on the federal government? Finally, how about we take some power away from them? The last subject matter of our call is anything that would impose scope or jurisdictional restraints on the federal government. The federal government originally had 17 enumerated powers in the Constitution, 17 things that the federal government was allowed to do. I counted last week, it's now 17,287,000. Okay, I'm not, I didn't actually count. But it feels like that, right? And so how about we push them back into the constitutional box? This is the way I like to say it, just because it's emotionally satisfying to me. Would you like to join me in getting your hands around the throat of the federal government and shoving it back in the constitutional box? Anybody in for that? No more Department of Education, no more Department of Energy, no more USDA, no more FDA, no more DEA. All of these things, the states have all of these departments. Why do we need the federal government in our business? Can Indiana do those things on its own? Of course you can. Too much, I might add. But we know how to do all those things in the states and the federal government shouldn't have and doesn't have and should never have been given the right to do these things. Most of these things granted by the courts of the United States of America in contravention of the very Constitution upon which we rely, the law of the land, which says that all lawmaking authority is in Congress. They can't delegate it to these agencies. They've done it and the courts have allowed it and we got to stop it. Are you with me? So we have the ability to do this. When 34 states call for a convention, two-thirds of states, the states will gather. They'll send one, they'll send a delegation from each state. Each state has one vote. Rhode Island has the same power in convention as Indiana or Texas. It's a convention of states, not a convention of delegates. They'll get together in convention, they'll debate things in these three subject matter areas. They'll come up with one amendment or a slate of amendments. If you want to see what this looks like, Convention of States did a simulation in Williamsburg, colonial Williamsburg, just a few months ago. That's online. Convention of States.com. They'll propose amendments and then those amendments go out to the states for ratification. It takes 38 states to ratify anything. So this is the last thing I'm going to say about the Convention of States and, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. I went way too long. I'm sorry about that. So I hear from people all the time, people on our side, I, I would say conservatives, people on the right, and they'll say to me, well, Mark, I'm really worried, because what happens if there's a runaway convention? Who knows what they're gonna do in that convention? We have no idea. Well, no, we do have an idea, because it takes 34 states saying what the limitations are convention, of convention are. Anything else is not germane to that convention. What if they do anyway? What if the convention gets completely out of control? And I say, so? What happens? They will maybe they'll propose repealing the Second Amendment. Now, first of all, I find that highly offensive. We're big gun folks in my family. We love our guns. My mom was a cop and then a sheriff's deputy. My son's a Marine. We like our firearms a lot. And so I'm not worried about the second amendment because first of all, remember, anything that comes out of convention is a suggestion. Have you ever been to a meeting and thought, oh my God, people are gonna make suggestions? I'm so scared. (laughs) People are just gonna make suggestions. That's the only power of a convention of states is to make suggestions. And then it has to go out to the states for ratification by 38 states. Now, I went to school in Los Angeles, California. I keep using that as an excuse, but I did learn basic math, okay? I can add and subtract pretty well. If it takes 38 states to ratify an amendment, that means it takes only 13 states to stop an amendment, right? So only 13 states. So let's talk Second Amendment in particular. Currently today, I'm proud to say, in the United States of America, 27 states have constitutional carry. You don't need a permit. Carrying a gun is your constitutional right. That's good, not enough, but that's very good. And it's been rising over the last several years. I think Florida was the last state to enact constitutional carry. There are actually 24 states where you can take your handgun, loaded, one in the chamber, and walk into your state legislature in the capital. By the way, in Texas, we actually have a fast pass lane. If you're carrying a gun, you don't have to wait in line. (laughs) That's the real deal, I'm not kidding. Yeah, so, so this is, here's a reason I love Texas. That's one of them. There are 14 states where you can take an AR, put one in the chamber, rack it, throw it across your back, carry it in a sling, walk into your legislature, sit in the gallery, and watch the proceedings. Now I'm not saying that's a good idea, I'm not promoting that. I'm just saying you can do that in 14 states. So now you tell me, just logically speaking, Are you gonna find 38 states that are gonna ratify the repeal of the Second Amendment? That's a ridiculous fever dream fantasy argument and people use it against Convention of States and you shouldn't buy into that. You know better, you're smart people. Ben Franklin, the framers of the Constitution, the founders of this country, and everybody who has signed the dotted line giving their life, putting their lives on the line to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, are counting on you right now. We have to do something. We have a duty to do something. I think it's a sacred duty. I think we as as people of faith, the people of the one true God, we understand duty. A lot of people in America have forgotten what it means to have a duty. Duty is what you do when nobody else is watching. Duty is what you do when you know you're gonna take punishment for doing the right thing, but you do it anyway. Duty is what you do when you don't wanna do it because it's not pleasant, but you just know that you should because it's the right thing. That's duty. John Quincy Adams was president of the United States, a one-term president, and after he was president, he went back and he served in the House of Representatives. That's hard to understand. You've been the president, the head honcho, the chief poobah, and now you're gonna go get elected to Congress and be a backbencher? But John Quincy Adams believed one thing so firmly that it kept him serving, and that was that slavery was a stain upon the United States of America. He was a hardcore abolitionist. In Congress, he was known as the hellhound of abolition. He was just, there's nothing else he cared about. There's nothing else he wanted to talk about. And he spent 17 years in Congress, 17 years. And the only thing he would talk about was abolition. He didn't want to talk about anything else. In fact, they found him so annoying, they passed the John Quincy Adams Censure Act, which said that if John Quincy Adams went on the floor of the House of Representatives and talked about abolition, that they would hold a five-day censure trial. He found that very appealing because he got to talk about abolition for five more days. (laughs) He was a difficult man. He died on the floor of the House of Representatives, had a stroke. It's now in Statuary Hall. You can, there's a plaque where he actually fell. And uh, shortly before he died, he was interviewed by a journalist. The journalist asked him, why do you keep doing what you're doing? Nobody favors abolition. Nobody wants to hear from you. Basically, you're just an annoyance. Why do you keep doing it? And John Quincy Adams said, duty is ours. The results belong to God. Duties ours, the results belong to God. I I love that. It says where we're at right now. We don't have an obligation to win, but we do have an obligation to fight. We don't have an obligation to be successful in calling a convention of states, but we have an obligation to fight for it. We don't have an obligation to rescue the country, but we have a duty to try to rescue our country. Sometimes it seems as though we're failing. We're in dark times right now. Sometimes it can feel like we're failing. John Quincy Adams, when he died, Maybe he felt like he had failed. Slavery was still part of the fabric of the United States of America. But during his last term, he was serving with a young congressman, and that congressman was so enamored that John Quincy Adams was in Congress. The great president John Quincy Adams said he followed him around. He asked to be mentored by him. He learned everything he could learn from him. He learned about John Quincy Adams' three-part plan for abolition. In fact, they became such close friends that this young congressman was asked to be one of the pallbearers at John Quincy Adams' funeral, quite an honor, and they had a fairly young friendship. And that congressman, at the time, got called home after his term was over. Back then, there weren't even primaries. You couldn't just decide to run. The party decided who ran. And so he was told by his party, come home, you can't run again. He, he didn't like that. He actually thought he was pretty good in Washington, D.C., but they didn't want him there anymore, so he went home, and a couple of years later, he convinced them to let him run again, and he ran, and he lost. And he ran again, and he lost. The third time he ran, he won. You and I know him as the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. And the reason I tell you that story, the reason why that story is so important to me, and I keep it so close to my heart, is because John Quincy Adams in his lifetime lost. He lost. He didn't see emancipation. He didn't even see a bill come out of a committee that could be debated on the floor for emancipation, but he knew his duty and he did his duty to God and to his country and to his fellow man. That's what John Quincy Adams did. And that's what I'm asking you to do, is to look in the mirror when you go home tonight, to pledge your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor to your fellow warriors, to your church family, to anybody that's in this fight with you. Know your duty and never quit. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me tonight. This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Visit conventionofstates.com pod to learn more. Thank you for listening.